Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles tonight, if you would please, and if you'll turn them to Matthew chapter 26. This evening is our first Lord's Supper observance since we changed our schedule just a couple of months ago. As you are aware by now, we have decided that we're going to have the Lord's Supper at the beginning of each quarter. Now, unfortunately, I miscalculated. I know what I was thinking about, but this is not the beginning of the quarter. The beginning of the quarter is in July, and so we're actually a month early, but that's okay. We'll observe the supper tonight, and then we'll have it again uh, at the time it's supposed to be, which will be on in October. So first week of October, we'll have the supper again. Now, some of you may wonder, why is it, why is it that we uh, decided to make this change? Because we've been observing the Lord's Supper monthly uh, ever since we can remember. I came to Berean about 12 years ago, and uh, we've observed it on the first Sunday night of each month all of that time. And even before I came, the church was accustomed to observing the Lord's Supper one time per month at the beginning of the month. So why did we make the change? Well, there are a few reasons for it. Uh, the first was because of our children's services on Sunday night. We have uh, many faithful teachers who teach in the Pioneer Club in the evening services and They were just never able to come together with us here in this body that we have here of all the church together to observe the supper. And so they didn't really get the, uh, just the feeling of that solemnity and peace and that we get as we observe the supper together. And really this is the most reverend service that I think that we have, the quietest service uh, of all that we have when we have the Lord's Supper. And so our teachers did not get to experience that and didn't get to have the fellowship with the rest of the church. So I wanted to change it for that purpose. Then I also decided to change it because for some people, a monthly observance may cause it to lose some of its special character. And people would sometimes miss the Lord's Supper because they think, well, we have it so often that it really doesn't matter. So we'll just catch up next month. But I think that whenever we come to that place that really we're failing the Lord and ourselves. And that's because this is a very special commemoration of the Lord's death. And if this is something that ever becomes mundane to us, then what we do is we devalue the death of Christ. And I think it shows the height of ingratitude that we would think this is just a boring, repetitious thing that we always do. But then there's a third reason why I wanted to make the change. And... That is because I've decided that I would bring a message that has to do with the Lord's Supper on this particular night uh, when we observe it. And so we'll take the entire evening service and dedicate it to this one thing that we do as we observe the Supper and think about the Lord's death. And so as long as the Lord is leading in that direction, I'll bring a, a sermon about the Lord's Supper or something that's connected to it each time that we observe it. So with all of that said, we're going to read the Lord's Supper text from Matthew chapter 26. So I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 26, is where we begin reading. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away away the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to the disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at the hand, he is at hand that doth betray me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight, and we are ready to observe this supper As we make some preliminary remarks about it, Lord, I just pray that you would open up our hearts to your word. And may we truly see the great solemnity of this, the the work that Jesus Christ did for us as he went to the cross. And as we commemorate your death, may we think especially tonight on the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. Bless as we go through our observance tonight and as we worship you in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We began our reading with verse number 26 of Matthew, and this is the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, what we don't see in the text is the teaching that took place during this last time that Jesus observed the Passover with his disciples. The Gospel of John actually gives us more detail about this, and it was more than just the disciples getting together to share a meal together and then uh, leaving uh, the place where they were. The supper was actually preceded by some detailed instruction. And if we go to John chapters 14 through 17, there we find the account of all the teaching that Jesus gave surrounding the supper. Now, there's some disagreement among interpreters about when, exactly when, chapters 14 through 17 take place. But at least we know this, that there was much concentration on teaching and on learning and clarification about things concerning Christ's death. And also for the the great need for the disciples to continue in the word that they had been taught after Jesus was, was gone. 
And these detailed instructions, especially concerning those about the Holy Spirit, would cause us to believe that there was no unsaved person that should observe the supper. Uh, Judas, as we've taught before and as we put all the scriptures together, uh, Judas had already gone out before the supper was instituted, and so he was ready and preparing to do the dastardly work of betraying Christ. So this wasn't really a time for an evil heart to, uh, to spoil that closeness of fellowship that Jesus had with those 11 disciples that were truly believers in him. And so that teaches us that there is no unsaved person who has communion with Christ. And so if an unsaved person comes into the observance of the supper, then it's really a a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ for them to act like they understand and believe something that they really don't believe and to commemorate the Lord's death. Now we also notice from this that there were only 11 that were assembled along with Jesus. Now there were many, many more people that had become disciples of Christ during his ministry. We especially think of people like uh, Mary and Martha that were very close friends of Jesus. Then also their brother Lazarus, the, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. He was also, of course, a believer in Jesus. The mother of Jesus, Mary, believed in him and believed he was the Messiah. And then there were all those people that Jesus healed those that were lame and blind and those that had devils that he cast out. There were many, many different people who came to know Christ as Savior during his public ministry. But we noticed that when this supper was instituted, that none of those people were actually present. They weren't invited to this. They weren't present. And so that tells us that these men who were the beginning of Christ's church was this very close-knit fellowship of believers and That teaches that the church itself is the place where the Lord's Supper is to be observed. It's to be observed among the members of the church and the members of the local church. But the narrative here in Matthew's account really doesn't stop there because as we read, we saw that after the supper was over, Jesus proceeded and he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He left his disciples and he went alone to pray. And there we learn that Jesus prayed about the cup. And that cup that he prayed about was a cup of death. Uh, Jesus knew that he would have to go to the cross and he would give his life for the sins of the world. Tonight, that's what I want to concentrate on. I want to concentrate on the cup. And there are actually two parts to this message. The first part of this you're going to get tonight, but the second part's not for four months down the road till we get to October. And so you'll get part number two of the sermon there. So your outline only has one main point this evening. Point two is... In October, so you can hopefully hang on to the outline and anxiously await part number two. But there's meaning in the cup, both for us and for Christ. And I want to talk to you tonight, especially about the meaning for us, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. What does the cup represent? In a few minutes, we're going to take the bread and the cup, and as you uh, take that cup to your lips, you need to understand what that cup means. So we're going to look at that part of it tonight, the relationship that we as Christians, believers in Christ and members of the Lord's church have to this cup. So number one, this is the sinner's cup. It's the sinner's cup because all of us that come to this are sinners that are saved by the grace of God. Now the cup is filled with the fruit of the vine. We use unfermented grape juice because we believe that that is what best represents the Savior's blood. 
Uh, Jesus Christ's blood was pure, and that's why we don't use fermented wine, because that is corrupt. And so we think that the grape juice, the pure juice of the grape, best represents Christ's blood. And then Jesus used this particular thing in the Lord's Supper when he instituted it. That's what they used in the Passover. And when Jesus gave the supper, he used the unfermented juice of the grape to... to, uh, observe uh, uh, both Passover and the Lord's Supper. So that's why we use it. We don't substitute any other kind of beverage than grape juice uh, for the Lord's Supper. Now let me give you then three representations for the sinner in the cup. First, it represents our cleansing. It represents our cleansing. Uh, In the Old Testament, there was a very unusual ceremony for the cleansing of lepers. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Leviticus chapter 14, and we can read about this. As most of you are aware, in the Bible, leprosy is a type of sin. It's a very terrible disease, and those that were lepers had this disease of leprosy. They had to be separated from God's people. They weren't allowed to come into the camp. They weren't allowed to have fellowship with the people, and so they were put outside of the camp. And that was a picture that those whose sins have not been forgiven by faith in Christ are separated, they're shut out from God. But we notice here in the 14th chapter of Leviticus that there was a ceremony that involved cleansing by blood. So we're going to start reading here in verse number 1 of Leviticus 14 about this very unusual ceremony. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest... And the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds, alive and clean, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel overrunning water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Now the Old Testament is filled with many, many different graphic illustrations of the person and the work of Christ. Now, here we see in this ceremony, there were two birds that were taken. One of the birds was killed under running water, and the blood of that bird was collected in a bowl. Then the living bird was dipped in the blood of the killed bird. Then that bird was set free, and the blood that was collected was sprinkled upon the leper to declare that he was clean. Now, that seems kind of strange to us, but there was really deep significance in all of this. The bird that was killed represents the death of Christ upon the cross. The blood that was collected and sprinkled upon the leper was to show that it's only the blood of Christ that is able to cleanse us from our sins. Uh, The bird was killed over running water, and the running water was used because that shows us that the Holy Spirit takes the blood and it applies the blood to our heart for cleansing. Then you also have that living bird, and it has significance as well. The living bird is set free, and what that pictures is the resurrection of Christ. Christ died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He arose from the grave, and the Bible teaches that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So we see these things in the ministry of the juice in the cup. 
It represents the blood of Christ that is the only thing that can cleanse us from our sins. Now, the supper, of course, is a memorial of the death of Christ. His blood was shed, and every time that we come together to take the Lord's Supper, we remember that Christ died for our sins. But we notice some words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Now, Christ died, but he lives, and he's coming back. And like those two birds, one that died and one that was set free, both, Christ both died and he arose from the grave. So there's a resurrection. So Christ died for our cleansing. And that's what the blood of rep- represents, the cleansing of the sinner and the blood of Jesus Christ. But Christ also lives. And so it also shows us that the blood of Christ is something that keeps on cleansing us from our sins. It's just not a past experience, but it's a present experience as well. It's a future experience that Christ's blood covers all of our sin. Now, we learn this from 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Now, the word cleanseth there is a verb that in the original language denotes continuous action. And so that verse could be rendered this way. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So that's a beautiful picture that we have in the cup. Christ cleanses us, but he keeps on cleansing us all from all sin, past, present, and future. Now, that would, I think, beg the question for many people who claim to be Christians when They say, well, why is it then that there are so many churches that have stopped preaching about the blood of Christ? Why don't they mention that anymore? And there are many churches who say, well, all that talk about blood and all these animals that were killed and then the suffering of Christ upon the cross and and the nails and all of that, we just don't want to talk about those things. Those are just too bloody. They're too gory. It's a sickening thing for us to think about that. Well, those people would not have made very good Jews in the Old Testament And they don't make very good Christians in the New Testament. In fact, I would have to tell you that I don't think that they're Christians at all. And that's because the Bible teaches us without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no remission of sin. And that word remission means forgiveness. Unless Christ died for us, unless his blood was shed for us, we can have no forgiveness of our sin. And so if you don't trust the blood of Christ, then there's one thing you can mark off your resume, mark Christian off, because you're not a Christian. It takes the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. Now, there's a second representation for the sinner in the cup. It represents our communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? You know, there's some people that are very confused about communion service, and, and they get confused about that word communion. What does all of that mean? And so they think, well, communion, that must mean the time for all of us to get together and for us to have fellowship with one another. And certainly we do believe that fellowship is an integral part of the celebration of the supper, and we believe that it ought to be done in the fellowship of the church. And that's the, one of the reasons why we changed the timing. That's so the church could come together and we could have fellowship. We could observe it together. One of the reasons why we don't have home communion sets and why we don't send out the Lord's Supper to people that are in hospitals is because the Lord's Supper is to be observed in the church setting among the fellowship of God's people. 
But people are confused about that because that is not the primary thing. Our fellowship is not primary. It's the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's the communion that we have with him. And so that means, or or that's the reason why, that the invitees to the Lord's Supper are not particularly those that we want to be there. And so we don't go out and pass out invitations to all the neighborhood and say, hey, we're having the Lord's Supper tonight. Everybody can come in and they can join together and have the Lord's Supper with us. We don't do that because it's not our privilege to do that. The Lord is the one who invites the people to the table. So it's not about bringing friends. It's not about bringing family. It's about the fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the Lord's table. And that is exactly why He invited those 11 disciples and invited no one else. So we're talking here about the communion of the church with him. And that's why I always mention Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians before we take the supper. Paul said there, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. That tells us that we have a responsibility to be in fellowship with the Lord. And so whenever there's sin in your life that has is, that is not been confessed and sin that hasn't been forsaken, there is no fellowship with the Lord. The fellowship has been broken. Now, if you come to my house for supper, it's not likely that I'll tell you that before you can sit down to eat, you have to confess your sins first. I probably won't do that. But that is exactly what the Lord commands when you come to his table. He says, before you sit down with me, those sins had better be confessed. They better be forsaken because this is about fellowship with him. That's his demand. Now, one thing that we really ought to consider is just how gracious the Lord is that he even allows us to come and commune with him. This is not an inherent right that we have. He's invited us to this. He's gracious enough to let us come and sit with the great king. And that just shows you the magnificence of our salvation. It shows the depths of God's grace. The Bible says that we are lifted up to sit in heavenly places in Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 3. And he looks at us and he says, you're no longer sinners because... You've been washed in my blood. He treats us as precious dear children. Ephesians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now there is the key to the passage. We are accepted in the beloved. The reason that God loves us is for Christ's sake. He's done so much for us because what Christ did through his death was to remove the enmity between us and God, between us and the Father. He took the judgment of our sins through the suffering of the cross. And all of that adds up to what? It adds up to communion. That's the reason why we have access to the Father. It's why we can commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's all based in the blood of the cross. And that representation is in this cup. Now, thirdly then... It represents our consecration. John writes in Revelation chapter 1, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace 
from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want you to notice there that he says that we are washed in the blood of Christ. And we've said that's represented in the cup. But John also says something else. He says that we have been made kings and priests unto God. Now, I want us to go back to the Old Testament again, to another one of these beautiful pictures of Christ. Now, we saw just a moment ago the ceremony for the cleansing of lepers. Well, there's also another ceremony that we find in the Old Testament, and this was for the consecration of priests. And that's in Exodus chapter 29. So I want you to turn there for just a moment. And uh, we really don't have time to read everything that's in this chapter. Uh, it, It includes a whole list of many different things that were done to consecrate the priest. There were many different offerings that had to be followed. There were ceremonies that had to be done. But I want you to notice particularly what it says about blood. Now, if you'll look at the first part of verse number 1 in Exodus chapter 29, it says, And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them to minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, that tells us then that all the following procedures are done for consecration. And, in fact, the end of this section, which is verse number 35, there precisely that's what we're told. It says there, And thus shalt thou do unto Aaron and to his sons, according to all the things which I have commanded thee, seven days shalt thou consecrate them. So everything that takes place from verse number 1 all the way down to verse number 35 is all about consecration of priests. But I want you to pay particular attention to the middle section, starting at verse number 19, because here it tells us about putting blood upon Aaron and his sons. It says, And thou shalt take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. Then shalt thou kill the ram, and take of his blood, and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons, and upon the thumb of their right hand, and upon the great toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hallowed and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Now there we see that it took the blood of the sacrifice to consecrate the priest. Now we notice here that there was blood that was put on the ear. And that means that there must be obedience to God's word. We hear God's word and we follow God's word. Then there was blood that was put on the thumb of the right hand. And that means that in all of our actions and all of our service to God, all the work that we do with our hands must be sanctified holy. And then there was blood that was put on the right toe. And that means that we are to walk with God. And over and over in the scriptures, the Bible talks about the believer's walk. It says, walk worthy, walk in love, walk circumspectly, walk in wisdom, walk in the light. And it even says this, walk even as he walked, as Christ walked. So this is all about the consecration of the priest in every area of his life. Now remember then, what is it that John said that we have been made? What are we? He said, you are kings and priests to God. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so what then are we sanctified by? What is it that we're consecrated by? How are we made holy? It only comes by the blood of Christ. Paul says we are washed in his blood. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what we see then is the blood of Christ is our consecration. That's what's represented in the cup that we take tonight. It is the sinner's cup. And that's because Christ's blood was poured out for us for the redemption of our sins. And so we're to take this cup, we are to drink it down, and by that we show that Christ's blood was shed for us. Now, I would have to ask you a question after going through all of these things. How could we be complacent about this? Seeing the beautiful picture that there is in the cup, I mean, how could we get bored by this? And, and how would it ever be that, that because we take it once a month or if we took it every single Sunday of the year, how could we ever think that all that this is is just some mundane type of repetition that we do? Now, do you see what I'm talking about here? If this is precious to us, then it will mean something to us. If it's not, then we fail the Lord. We're ungrateful and we cheat ourselves out of these blessings of cleansing and communion and consecration. Now, with all of that said, I want us to move into the observance of the supper. Now, I've preached to you some things tonight. I've explained some things to you. But I could have just as well said nothing at all. I could have said, well, what we'll do tonight, we're just going to put things out on the table. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and then we'll go home. And you know that would be all right. And you know why? Because the Lord's Supper is a preaching ordinance. I mean, just the observance of what we're doing here, for someone to come in and see what we do here, you have to be gripped by what all of these things here are about. And so people ask the question, what is that for? What does that represent? Why do you do this? And folks, whenever we are asked that question, we just have a wonderful opportunity to explain that this supper represents the blood of Jesus Christ and his body that was broken for us. It represents the cross of Christ by which we are redeemed. And it becomes just a wonderful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are actually two ordinances that... Uh, God gave us to represent the great work of Christ. That's baptism, and it's the Lord's Supper. In both of those, Jesus Christ is preached in that every time that we observe it. Now, so we want to go into the observance of the Supper tonight. So deacons, if you would come, please, and if you'll come and take your places here, we're going to prepare for the distribution of the Supper tonight. And as we always do, as I said a few moments ago, this is extremely important for us to do. Before we begin, we must be sure that our sins have been, have been asked forgiveness for, that we've, we've just come to the Lord and we've confessed our sins and asked Him to forgive us so we can just have that closeness of fellowship with Him and know that we observe the supper properly. And so we do want to do this. We're going to take just a few minutes here, just a, a minute or so, for us to bow our heads and in silent prayer, each of us confess our sins to God so that fellowship with the Lord is restored and there is nothing that would hinder our fellowship with him. So let's pray together silently.